When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Doc Vader, the most powerful clinician in the galaxy. You are listening to the Inside the Boards podcast. The force is moderately to severely strong with this one. Vader out. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Thanks for tuning in to the Inside the Boards podcast. That was the inimitable Z-Dog MD in his persona as Doc Vader. I want to thank him so much for providing that little intro. I'm not going to lie, it was sort of um, an annoyance and persistence on my part that I think got him to finally acquiesce and record it. So you should tweet to him at Doc Vader and say thanks for helping support this podcast. And while you're at it, if you haven't listened to the Incident Report, Z-Dog's podcast. You should check it out on the Apple Podcasts app. It's a great take on general medical topics, is very encouraging. And if you're familiar with Z-Dog's work, you know very often he says what we think. Or just go to either docvader.com or zdogmd.com and learn about Health 3.0 and what he's doing to contribute to a more positive culture of medicine. We've got about three to four weeks left um, to complete the Study Smarter series for Step 1. And before it concludes, I'm really hoping you guys can tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes. We'd really like to get to the top 10 within the iTunes rankings. Subscriptions, ratings, and reviews drive the iTunes rankings. So the more of you who can do that, the more people who will learn about this show and encourage us to keep going to produce high-quality content for you. Today, we're doing the Reproductive System Part 1, and next we'll release Part 2, followed by a string of mini-episodes on microbiology. So let's get into some repro questions from the Open Osmosis platform. Remember, you can check out osmosis.org. Osmosis is the personalized learning platform that manages medical school for you. Whether you are finishing up your first or second year and moving into your clinical rotations, Osmosis has a number of features that will help you learn what you need to know, retain it, succeed in medical school, and on your exams. Check it out at osmosis.org. 
You can also thank them for helping with the podcast on Twitter at OsmosIt. Our guest today is Dr. Diane Evans, who was formerly a basic science researcher at the NIH and then went on to become a doctor. She received her doctor of osteopathy at the University of Health Sciences in Kansas City and then went on to complete her OBGYN residency at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore. She is a leader in the OBGYN specialty board exam preparation space. Uh, for instance, she helped me pass my oral boards back in November. And she lectures for America's OBGYN board review course, amongst many, many other things. Her own platform, of which she is the co-founder, PassingYourOBGYNBoards.com, is especially worth checking out if you are a resident listening and facing either your written or oral board certification in the near future. Interestingly, on your, I think your website, you mentioned you're a kinesthetic learner. Right. What does that mean for med school? Well, for med school, the way that I learned, and I went to medical school, this is my second career, so I started medical school with a five-day-old infant and 32 years old. And the way I had to learn is I actually had to involve myself into understanding the discipline by visually looking at it, auditorily listening to it, and then in the anatomy lab to dissect it. So for the reproductive system, for example, it was very helpful for me to combine all three entities to actually comprehend and understand. Yeah. If you say you're primarily a kinesthetic learner, I think surgically a lot of people, you almost have to have some facility with that learning style to get procedures. I remember doing like vaginal hysterectomies. It took me about 10 times to realize, oh, that's what's going on. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I was like, I don't understand. How are we turning all this inside out? And I, I think a lot of medical students, uh, especially because they're, they're getting such a small window into the cramped space of that surgical approach, also feel the same way. It can be somewhat bewildering, I suppose. I like learning via audio, hence the podcast, but you probably need a little bit of all the learning styles, visually, auditory, kinesthetic, etc., to to be successful and well-rounded within medical education. I suppose that's fair. Right. I could just say that having these audio files available for medical students is really priceless because I remember buying the Gold series, and I don't know if you remember that. They don't publish it anymore, but it was a whole audio series of different uh, areas to study for for my boards, and I really thought that was instrumental into helping me pass my steps. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, you're on faculty, clinical faculty, correct? Correct. Do you teach medical students or just residents mostly? Mostly first and second year medical students, which is okay. really great. So I just finished grading for their final exams for their clinical practice at William Carey. So that was really interesting to work with them all year and then see the final product. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. We've got uh, a few high-yield questions and concepts to discuss today. We're going to focus on disorders of sexual differentiation and some of the more unique OBGYN-related uh, concepts. So first question is, a 20-year-old female comes to the office because she has not had her first menstrual period. Physical examination shows normal breast development, but minimal axillary and pubic hair. Pelvic examination shows that the vagina ends in a blind pouch and masses are palpable in the inguinal region. Which of the following karyotypes 
is most likely? And the answer choices here are A, 45XO, B, 46XY, C, 47XXX, D, 47XXY, or E, 47XYY. And the answer choice here is B, 46XY. So why is that the case, Dr. Evans? Well, one of the things about this question, and I like this question because it involves a couple of levels of understanding. The first is you know that she obviously has sexual development. So that lets us know that she has had breast development, but you notice that there's not anything in the axillary area. And in that case, there's two things you have to think about, either androgen insensitivity syndrome or malarian agenesis. However, this passage does give a little clue saying there's no pubic hair or minimal pubic hair. And that helps differentiate malarian agenesis, meaning blind vagina and female phenotype from AIS or androgen insensitivity in a male phenotype. And so the correct answer for this would be the 46XY, and it's due to the mutation in this androgen receptor. Yeah, and I think there are definitely a number of points to remember here. A lot of students get kind of tripped up on these questions or this section of diseases. Even though most of them are incredibly rare, they are favorites on the step one, step two kind of level of the boards, most likely because they represent or illustrate important pathophysiologic, genetic, et cetera, kind of concepts. So with androgen insensitivity, you have a person who is genotypically male, right? Phenotypically, though, they are female because the androgen receptor doesn't respond or it's mutated and doesn't respond to the normal androgens during a sexual differentiation. Just to kind of give a broad overview or heuristic of sexual differentiation, which is much more complex at a basic science level, I just want to highlight a few things. So the embryo is in an indifferent state to start. You've got the Wolfian or mesonephric ducts, which eventually can become the vas epididymis, seminal vesicles, ejaculatory duct essentially the internal male genitalia, and they exist in conjunction with the paramesonephric ducts or mullerian ducts, which will develop the internal female genitalia, fallopian tubes, uterus, and upper vagina. It's often said that the default pathway is anatomically female, meaning that if nothing tells the female system to regress, and the male system to develop, a female phenotype will result. And that's kind of what we we have here because highlights the genotypic complement will determine the development of one gonadal type or the other. So if you are an XY during development, you will develop testes. If you're XX, the gonads will differentiate into ovaries. That Y chromosome, when it's present, the SRY region, this is important to remember for test taking, directs the gonads to become testes. And if they are testes, they will produce testosterone and androgens from Leydig cells and Mullerian inhibiting substance or anti-Mullerian hormone from the Sertoli cells. So the testosterone that's produced will kind of govern the development of 
internal male genital development via the Wolfian ducts. And that's kind of what you would expect to happen, except in our particular question, androgen insensitivity, you've got the androgen there. You don't have a normal receptor to get it to do its job, right? Right. So this old term testicular feminization or now androgen insensitivity, there's no response to testosterone. So the XY genotypes there, there are testes there as the gonads and malarian inhibiting substance is still made. So the uterus, fallopian tubes and upper vagina don't form internally but because there is no androgenic stimulation to develop the male internal and external genitalia, the phenotype is female. And this includes breast development at puberty since excess testosterone gets converted to estrogens thanks to aromatase, which is an important enzyme to remember at all levels of reproductive physiology, pathophysiology for the boards. And that's kind of the essential pathophysiologic problem with androgen insensitivity. What about, I guess, another issue or a disease within this category of uh, disorders of sexual differentiation, 5-alpha reductase deficiency? Like these are people who have a predominantly female appearance or ambiguous genitalia at birth because they do produce malarian inhibiting substance, which causes regression of the malarian or a paramesonephric system, this leads to regression of uterus, fallopian tubes, upper vagina, and they have a blind vaginal pouch. But in puberty, they have testosterone in contrast to those with androgen insensitivity, and this will lead to the development of secondary sexual characteristics, pubic hair, deepening of the voice, and elongation of the primary phallic structure or Clitoromegaly. Anything else to say about that, I guess? Yeah. The other thing I want to mention just about this question stem that I think is important is when you're doing your exam, you have masses that are palpable in the inguinal region. And I think one of the points we want to bring up here that's important clinically is that these testes have a chance to develop into cancer, and so they need to be removed. That's a good point, because you could very easily see the board's question writers presenting a similar vignette and then asking which of the following is the most likely complication um, right. of this patient's disease and mention, you know, the development of testicular cancer or, or a bunch of other potential complications. But the answer here with the cryptorchid testes would be the development of malignancy. All right. What about some of these distractors? So A was 45XO. That describes Turner syndrome. What are some important kind of things to know about Turner syndrome? Well, one of the things about Turner syndrome is that patients appear to be female. They have primary amenorrhea as well as short stature. And the other thing is coarctation of the aorta. One thing about Turner syndrome in itself is that these are patients that you will see in the reproductive endocrine clinic for um, failure to conceive. And so nowadays with the advent of the cell-free DNA and other testing, a lot of these are being picked up uh, while the mother is still pregnant. Yeah. Why do they have primary amenorrhea? One of the big things is with Turner syndrome that they're 45XO and 
primary amenorrhea mainly because they have the streak gonads. So that's always a buzzword on the boards. And uh, one thing that you see on the OBGYN boards is actually pictures of streak ovaries. And so if you have streak ovaries and you don't have the estrogen, you're obviously not going to have a normal menstrual cycle. So the ovaries are, when we say streak ovaries, we're talking like ovaries that don't function normally or underperform, if you will? Correct. And the result of that would be that the person with Turner syndrome has an intact pituitary and hypothalamic system, but the ovarian endocrine system is is deficient. So they will, in an endocrinologic sense, they'll have increased follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, because those things are trying to tell the ovary to work to proceed along a normal menstrual cycle, but they just fail to do it because the material of the the ovaries itself can't produce enough of the estrogen progesterone. Is that a good kind of basic summary of what's going on uh, endocrinologically? Yeah, perfect. So the other thing that also ties in with that question is the uh, next uh, distractor, which is 47XXX. So sometimes they call that a super female. And yeah. those females also are going to have premature ovarian failure, so they're going to have a high FSH. Yes, yeah, so that, that was C, Ancitroy-C, 47XXX uh, karyotype, which I don't know that that's a very common first and second year medical student concept so much. Kleinfelters, which was choice D, 47XXY definitely is, because these are the patients who have sort of uh, they're they're male in phenotype, but with elongated extremities, uh, female distribution of uh, fat and hair, and are infertile due to dysfunction of their Leydig cells, which should be producing testosterone androgens, right? Right. There's a lot of classic pictures that kind of show that Kleinfelter phenotype. And let's see, what was the last one? Oh, yes, the 47XYY genotype. These are the double Y males. I would say when it comes to the boards at the first and second year level, the most important thing to remember here is they are found more often or there's a higher incidence of this genotype within the penal system. And these people are more likely to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. I think that pretty much covers kind of our distractors, but it might be worth mentioning what happens in that default pathway of female sexual differentiation. So in the absence of androgens produced by the testes and the malarian-inhibiting substance produced by the testes, the malarian ducts will fuse in the middle and then a partition is formed between them which dissolves subsequently. But this can go wrong in a number of different senses, right? Right. Maybe walk us through some of the Mullerian anomalies as they're kind of grouped together. So in female development, you have absent androgens in MIS, and the paramesonephric or Mullerian ducts, they fuse. And then they partition between them, dissolve. So in a didelphic uh, uterus, you have complete failure of the Mullerian ducts. 
to fuse. So you have two cervixes and two vaginas. And um, that's actually a, a pretty cool physical exam. I had that once in residency and I haven't seen it since, but I had to do a, a dual pap smear. Yeah, I so. saw, I've seen it twice. Actually, when I was an intern, within a month of being on, we had uh, a patient on the uh, labor and delivery ward who had a didelphus. So you can imagine as an OBGYN intern, just figuring out how to check for dilation. <laughs> was difficult, but then uh, add two cervixes and it got really confusing. (laughs) Right. So usually with a didelphic uterus, it's basically the complete failure of the malarian ducts diffuse. So one thing I do want to point out is when you have a failure of that fusion, you're also going to have urogenital abnormalities because the GU and the uterine system forms at the same time. That's a good point. One thing that comes up on the OBGYN boards quite frequently is you have, if you have a septate uterus or an imperforate hymen, that's not associated with a GU abnormality. And so that's one thing I wanted to mention. The next type of, besides a didelphic uterus or basically duplication of, you have two uteruses, two cervix, you have a unicornuate uterus, and this one is actually associated with the highest pregnancy wastage because the uterus gets to a certain size. A lot of these patients will have preterm labor. They only have one half of the uterus form, and so the other half actually regresses. If you have a septate uterus, meaning a division of little cartilage tissue between the two uterine halves because of failure of that resorption, That can be fixed surgically, and you can have a good pregnancy outcome after it. But with a septate uterus, a fusion occurs normally, but dissolution of that dividing septum fails to occur. And what happens, especially if you have an anterior placenta that develops in pregnancy, is it will hit that part, and then basically you're going to have die off and you're going to have a miscarriage. So you have recurrent miscarriages with a septate uterus. Um, And that can be fixed surgically. The bicornuate uterus is interesting as well. And the bicornuate uterus is fusion of only the distal or lower malarian duct. So you have one vagina, one cervix, but you actually have two uterine horns. And this is a favorite OBGYN board's question as well, because the only way to truly differentiate it is actually to do either an MRI or to do a concomitant hysteroscopy and a laparoscopy. So you're looking at the outside contour and you're looking at the inside contour. So simply doing a HSG won't let you know if you have a bicornuate versus a septate uterus. Which is a hysterosalpingogram. We shoot dye right. into the cervix and try to look at it radiographically as it comes out of the fallopian tubes and fills the uterine cavity. I think for a medical student, probably at the first, second year level, the pathology, pathophysiology is the most important part. And probably the distinction and definition between didelphus, which is complete failure of malarian ducts to fuse. So you get essentially duplication of the system, two cervixes, two vaginas, and bicornuate, which is only partial fusion of the malarian ducts. And that is at the distal or or lower part, where you will only have one vagina, one cervix, but the upper part leads to two separate horns. Uh, I know it's hard to say that some of this might be more of like a OBGYN shelf exam kind of level content. 
and this is the one where I would get on Google and say, show me pictures Absolutely. of, you know, show me pictures of uterine abnormalities on HSG, yeah, for example. Yeah. And if you, if you Google that, you'll get all the pictures. And that's how I learned as an older student is I'd look at the picture and I'd listen and I'd look at the picture and I'd listen. And that's part of the kinesthetic learning. Okay, let's move on away from disorders of sexual differentiation and go to a 32-year-old woman at 16 weeks estimated gestational age who comes to the office because of vaginal bleeding for the past three days. The bleeding has been accompanied by mild nausea and vomiting over the past week, and pelvic examination shows that her uterus is larger than expected for the estimated gestational age. Transvaginal ultrasound shows a snowstorm appearance, and no fetal heartbeat is detected. Which of the following is most likely elevated in this patient's serum? And the answer choices here are A, alpha-fetoprotein, B, estradiol, C, human chorionic gonadotropin, D, human placental lactogen, or E, lactate dehydrogenase. And the correct answer here is C, HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin. So what are they pointing us towards in this question? The first thing I would do when I look at this question is I, whenever I take a test, I kind of, I read the answer choices first, and then I go back and I read the question. And so then it gives me an idea of what are the possible answers and what I'm looking for. And when I'm looking through these questions here, and then I go back to the STEM, one thing I'm looking at is I have someone who's 16 weeks, she's having vaginal bleeding, and they give me a buzzword of the uterus is larger than expected. Yeah. And the other thing they give me, which is a huge clue, is the ultrasound shows a snowstorm appearance. And I think that's just a buzzword you're going to have to remember that's going to be associated with a molar pregnancy. Yep. And so the classic findings of a molar pregnancy is uterus larger than expected. There's no fetal heart tones in a snowstorm appearance. And usually they present with vaginal bleeding. And I think the major takeaway point is when you have a molar pregnancy, you're going to have high levels of the human chorionic gonadotrophin or HCG. And you have symptoms also of hyperthyroidism. Yeah. Why does that occur? Well, that's the alpha subunit, and that's basically HCG and TSH carry the same receptor. So you're going to have elevations in thyroid with a molar pregnancy. Now, I don't know how much detail that we're going to go into, but one of the things about a molar pregnancy is there's different types of molar. There's either complete molar pregnancies or partial molar pregnancies. Yeah, tell us about those. Well, with a complete mole, the egg is fertilized by two sperm. And so it's dispermy or one sperm that duplicates and you have complete paternal complement. So you have a 46XX or 46XY. And I always remembered it the, as daddy's little girls. And so that helped me remember that it was the paternal duplication. And if it's complete, uh, you have a huge increase in HCG, no fetal parts because you have no normal eggs. So the big thing here is there's no fetal parts in a complete molar pregnancy. A partial mole, on the other hand, is a haploid egg. So you have one copy of X, and it's fertilized by two sperm, either X or Y. 
or one sperm that duplicates either X or Y. And so the genotype is going to be, there's going to be three. It's going to be 69XXY. And I think that's actually the most common genotype of a partial mole, which is an important kind of fact to memorize for step one. Right. I think that's very important. And the big thing with this is you're going to get something that's going to tell you that there's going to be fetal parts that are there. And I remember when I was an intern, we actually had someone who had a twin pregnancy. It was very interesting. So they had uh, a normal baby in one and a complete molar pregnancy in in the other. So it was a high-risk pregnancy that we followed. Yes, it was very interesting. Did they follow it to... Yep, she she delivered. She um, ended up having a C-section, made it to 32 weeks. So that was an interesting case. I guess the other thing then to dimension is why do we even care about molar pregnancies? Because gestational trophoblastic disease. And that's a great point to bring up as well. So complete moles have a higher incidence of GTD. and, And specifically, what we're talking about is choriocarcinoma for the probably at the medical student level. Complete mole, higher incidence of choriocarcinoma. Partial mole, not as high, but still more likely than in, as a sequela of a normal pregnancy. And the other thing I want to bring out that uh, they could show something pathologically or, or give a picture perhaps on Comlex, and you're going to see a grape-like structure, hydropic villi. And in a molar pregnancy, those villi are going to be abnormal and very distinct under pathology. All right. Now that I look at these distractors, though, um, so the the interrogatory was which of the following is most likely elevated in this patient's serum? It should really be which of the following is most likely to be abnormally elevated in this patient's serum because alpha-fetoprotein is going to be elevated in a pregnant woman compared to a non-pregnant state. Correct. And an important thing to remember about AFP is that it will be increased in the maternal serum in those who have an open neural tube defect in their fetus or abdominal wall defect like gastroschisis. And I always think of that as alpha-fetoprotein spills out of a hole in the baby into mom's blood. In contrast, and this, although is less used by us in OBGYN practice, like nowadays as a, as a serum marker with the development of more advanced things, still comes up in the step one, kind of step two review literature. And that's if your alpha fetoprotein is decreased, in that case, you're going to be looking at a fetus who has most likely Down syndrome or trisomy 21. Those are pretty good facts to remember for step one. B was estradiol. Estradiol will also be increased if a woman is pregnant versus not. Human placental lactogen is produced only by the placenta, so also going to be increased in a pregnant woman. And this might be a little advanced for the preclinical students, but HPL is important as a hormone because it is responsible for or is implicated in the development of gestational, specifically gestational diabetes. And it's a heuristic. This isn't exactly how it works, but I I would always tell the, the clinical medical students that HPL causes insulin resistance. The more placenta there is, the more of this hormone that can be produced. And that's why some women who aren't diabetic at baseline, as their placenta grows and gets big, 
towards the late second, early third trimester, they cross over into that threshold of too much insulin resistance and a pathophysiologic mechanism that's more like type 2 diabetes, but is only in pregnancy and therefore gestational diabetes as an entity. That might be a little advanced for the first or second year medical students. <laughs> yep. so don't don't worry per- about that if you haven't. Perfect for the boards, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't learned about human placental lactogen in your first and second year classes, just forget what I just said. LDH lactate dehydrogenase is <laughs> that's uh, that's also produced by the placenta and increases to a certain extent uh, during pregnancy, not not to a pathophysiologic extent. So really, I guess in summary, that interrogatory should be, which of the following is most likely abnormally elevated in this patient's serum? And it's human chorionic gonadotropin because she has a molar pregnancy. All right, that is part one of Repro. We'll be back in a couple days with part two. Thanks to Stuart Bryant, our producer, and to physicianloans.com for supporting this show. If you are about to graduate medical school, you are a resident or a practicing physician, physicianloans.com can help you navigate the complexities of the home buying process and secure the financing you need. And like I said at the beginning, please subscribe on iTunes, rate us, or leave a review. We're interested in your feedback, and we're asking you to help us get to the top 10 in the iTunes medicine category. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to James from Two O'Clock Courage for letting us use the opening track, which is the Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. You can check Two O'Clock Courage, the best band you've never heard of, at twooclockcourage.com or on iTunes or Spotify. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards, or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.